Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Barry Kassin, Katrina Dudkevich, and Steph Voye. We'll introduce our guest today. So uh, that will be Eric Zhao, who's a hematology fellow here at the University of British Columbia. And uh, Eric, can you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Tell the crowd who you are and what your deal is. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for the introduction. And I'm really excited to be here on the podcast been a long-time listener, first-time presenter. I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that I'm married to one of the other hosts. And <laughs> I'll leave it as an exercise to the listener. Yeah. That might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Step, step um, would be so lucky. Yeah, seriously. What a catch. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, seriously, I, I actually followed Katrina to the West Coast and I've done my medical training all at UBC. Um, she's actually one of the main reasons I went into medicine in the first place. So I'm really excited to join you guys on this diagnostic journey. I'm not sure that I can provide a higher quality case than what's been done before, but I'll try my best. Oh, Perfect. I wouldn't worry too much. That <laughs> shouldn't be a problem. Um, and uh, Kat, Kat um, you of course have to recuse yourself from case solving because it's your partner, Supreme Court style, or uh, you're going to participate as well. Well, I actually, I don't know this case, so Perfect. I'm going to try to figure it out. Oh, awesome. Good. Okay, so everyone's on board. Um, so I guess with that, Eric, we'll, we'll hand it over to you and uh, you can get started. Let's okay. get bloody. <laughs> yeah. let's, get, let's get in there. So I bring to you um, for consideration a case of a male in his early 70s presenting with weakness, fatigue, and weight loss. I'll start with his past medical history, which includes rheumatoid arthritis, which was diagnosed seven years before the index presentation. He had been treated with uh, methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine, but his rheumatoid arthritis went into remission and he stopped treatment, i.e. all immunosuppression, three years before presentation. He has a history of asthma, which was diagnosed at age three. He had a recent PFT, which showed mild obstructive airway disease, not much uh, reversibility, but he remains on Simbicort. He had an Achilles tendon rupture uh, that he suffered 11 years before presentation while playing tennis. This was managed with uh, a non-operative approach. He's known to have sigmoid diverticulosis with a screening colonoscopy showing two polyps, which were removed. This happened seven years before presentation. And... He's had bilateral cataract extractions three years before presentation. His, he was at his baseline level of health about five weeks before his index admission when he suddenly began feeling achy and tired, and those were his words. Uh, he had associated fevers and chills as well as night sweats. He called his family doctor who diagnosed a potential flu-like illness and he was managed with supportive measures. About four days after the onset of these symptoms, he noted scrotal swelling, which was painless and constant. This didn't really bother him or limit his function, so he didn't seek medical attention. And about two and a half weeks before the index uh, admission, he went on a planned vacation to Europe. It had been a really dry, hot summer in the lower mainland, so I guess he had gone to Spain to see if there was any rain. And... 
His symptoms unfortunately <laughs> worsened while there. Um, he developed worsening generalized weakness, decreased appetite, and shivers, as well as drenching night sweats to the point where he had to change his t-shirts overnight. He sought medical attention while in Spain and was uh, admitted for overnight observation to hospital. History from the patient notes that he had a fever at the time. It was 38.1 degrees Celsius. He had blood work and urinalysis done and a potential scrotal ultrasound uh, for his swelling, which showed no infection or any sort of abscess. Unfortunately, we don't have any detailed reports from this hospital admission. He was given a course of amoxicillin and discharged the next day, but he cut his trip short because he continued to feel well um, with ongoing low energy as well as polydipsia. So he returned to the lower mainland four days before the index admission. In terms of uh, rounding out his past medical history, medications and allergies, he's taking Simbacort, like I said, and otherwise has been um, lucky not requiring other medications, just taking fish oil and vitamin D as no known drug allergies. In terms of social history, he's a retired dental surgeon. He uh, lives in the lower mainland. He's a lifelong non-smoker and drinks two to three glasses of wine daily. At baseline, he's very fit, golfs a lot, hikes and walks, runs up the hills near his house. He has traveled extensively, uh, including to Rwanda, Malawi, and Southeast Asia, extensively in North America as well. He did not travel much during the pandemic years, but more recently has been to Bella Coola and France earlier the year of this uh, index admission. Three days before the index admission, he presents to his local emergency department with worsening symptoms of fatigue, weight loss, uh, and the other constitutional symptoms he's had. He gets routine blood work done there, which shows a leukocytosis, white count of 15.4, anemia, that's normal cytic anemia, hemoglobin 123, MCV 99. Platelets were high at 511. The differential on his leukocytosis shows a predominant neutrophilia, uh, 13.5. Lymphocytes were slightly low at 0.7. His chemistry shows normal electrolytes, but his creatinine was higher than baseline. So his creatinine bad admission or that presentation was 122, and his baseline is usually between 80 to 90. And notably, his CRP was very high. It was 222. Upper limit of normal is 7.5. Because of his history of scrotal swelling, the eMERGE doctors did a urine culture uh, urinalysis, which was very bland. The urine culture ultimately showed no growth. They also tested him for chlamydia and gonorrhea, both of which were negative. They sent him for a scrotal ultrasound, and the report came back showing both testes appearing edematous with marked edema, heterogeneity of the epididymi. There's marked hypervascularity of the epididymi and the testes, and a tiny associated hydrocele. No overlying soft tissue swelling within the scrotal skin, no abscess or intrascrotal collection. They thought the radiologists reading the the images thought this was most in keeping with bilateral epididymal orchitis, but it was unusual in appearance, and they said so in the report. In addition to the typical infective etiologies, they thought non-infectious causes of an epididymal orchitis would be in the differential and recommended a referral to urolo urology as well as infectious diseases. They suggested follow-up imaging in four to six weeks. I will pause there and ask the group what's on your mind at this point this is so good That's what's yeah on my what, mind. what a great case uh, i'm feeling pretty rusty i i mean i don't know i don't know about 
the rest of you folks, but uh, I got to dust off the cobwebs and remember my approach to painful versus non-painful scrotal swelling, or however <laughs> however that's supposed to be approached. Maybe Steph, can we start with you? Like, what's uh, how are you kind of integrating this information off the bat? Like, what what oh. are your kind of front runner thoughts? Danny, you read my mind. I, I, you know, so I, I just moved into a new house a couple months ago, and I have okay. stable Wi-Fi now, and <laughs> I am like chomping at the bit to participate. Great. So yeah, I have I have some thoughts. Actually, I have a couple. I have one question for you, Danny. Is it common to meet someone who gets diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in their mid sixties? Uh, less common. There is older onset RA, which often has a PMR kind of component to it. 60s is a little outside of the standard age range for standard run-of-the-mill polyarthritis RA. Not crazy, but it and then, is And then that disease, that disease remits after a few years of methotrexate and Plaquenil. So that, for me, that that's is like, unusual. hmm, does this man have RA or was this some other thing? Um, and I don't even know if that's germane to this, but it's just an oddity that I think is worth at least highlighting. And so mm-hmm. for me, with that, whether it's RA or whether it's something else, I'm going to label this guy as immune dysregulated. And so that's just like a thing that I'm going to park. I don't know if he's immunosuppressed or if he's you know autoimmune, but I think of him as like immune question mark. And then I think the thing that I used to do very poorly in this show and I'm trying to do less poorly is to go through the like effortful exercise of making a problem list. And I have a feeling that if with a good problem list here, we're probably going to do better than without one. I think scrotal swelling with epididymoarchitis is an issue, um, is a problem. Um, I think that a CRP of 200 is a thing uh, that is worth noting. And I don't know, the polydipsia is kind of a weird symptom, and I don't know how much stock to put in that, but I'm going to at least highlight it, and at some point I'd like some understanding of that. You know, I don't think that labeling leukocytosis, relatively macrocytic anemia, in addition to those, I don't think those the differential diagnosis for those is so broad. And along same thing with weakness, anorexia, rigors, sweats, I don't know if having those as separate issues is useful at this point, mm-hmm. and so I won't. Uh, similarly, you know, the the mild acute kidney injury, I don't know. I'm not sure how... I think it's probably worth having as an issue, only to make sure that we don't lose track of it and and to ensure that the basics are done, like that you have a renal ultrasound and a urinalysis and all that stuff. But on its own, I, I think that's probably unlikely to, to be the sort of key log. So I'm most interested at this point in uh, the scrotum... <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the elevated CRP, and and then like I'm gonna lump all the rest: fever, leukocytosis, macrocytic anemia, kidney injury, uh, fevers, chills, all those things into like he's sick. But I think it's gonna probably be explained by us getting down to the bottom of those other issues. Mm-hmm. And do you have something on your mind in terms of like the scro- like it's not just scrotal swelling, but it's also like edematous testes and epididymal swelling. Like, is there something on your list that you're thinking of in terms of etiology there, or how are you going to kind of interrogate that? Now? How are you I mean, going to interrogate like, the scrotum? Hello, sir. Um, <laughs> is how I would start. Be friendly. Um, I would start off with infectious, like. Could he have mumps? I don't know. It's possible. It seems unlikely, but I don't know what his sort of vaccination status is or or if that kind of 
changes over time whether when you're immune dysregulated. So could he just mm-hmm. have mumps or something like that or some other infectious thing? I realized his STI screen was negative, but you know, could this be infectious? And I think there are inflammatory things that can cause your like your your testicles to swell. Like um, HSP is on my list of things that can do that. So I would just you know I'd want to make sure that I, I, we understand his rheumatology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that you know this idea of a of a urology consult I think is it's fine. I I don't imagine that they're going to add a whole lot, but that that's where I would start. Yeah. And I, I guess I always like to know, like when I get this story that they were once diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, because it's often a clinical diagnosis, I think, I think I always need to know, like, how did they come to that diagnosis? Like, did they have polyarthritis or what, like what in particular, what was their serology? Like how convincing was the diagnosis? And, and I think you point out, like, how are they in remission? It's like less than 10% of RA patients will be in remission for more than a year off of medication. So like that is a low percent of people who can truly come off meds. And then that always makes me question the original diagnosis. So that's two things about it that are a bit weird, right? The age of onset and this business of spontaneous remission. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like I think if I see a 60 something year old with classic RA, I don't really like bat an eye, but uh, yeah, I I think it is definitely on the older end. Uh, You know, Barry or Kat, do you have any um, like upfront thoughts on what we're dealing with here? I guess I was kind of lumping things together more than making a problem list and definitely going into the kind of infectious versus autoimmune versus malignant possibilities. He's definitely had a ton of travel. And so I need to look up a bit more like, what can you get in Rwanda and Malawi and Southeast Asia? We always talk about TB (laughs) and that came to mind with the scrotal swelling as well. And then just Kind of originally the like RA diagnosis made me chase down this maybe autoimmune path. And I wondered about his Achilles tendon rupture. Like, could this have been some emphysitis or something with some other rheumatologic diagnosis? And then like you said, stuff with the DI, that kind of made me wonder, like, do we have something that's involving the brain? And do we have some sort of central diabetes insipidus, which again could be your infectious versus autoimmune? I'm at this point lower on the malignant side. He's obviously got the fevers, chills, weight loss, sweats, but I'm kind of more towards those infectious and autoimmune etiologies. And to be honest, I need to look up a bit more about this epididymitis, orchitis to know what the more common causes of there. And maybe that's where urology could be helpful at this this time. How about you, Barry? Any uh, any opening thoughts? Well, no, I think both the both. Um, comments, uh, commentators are, are accurate. It really always depends on the lens you use. If you said this is a 70-year-old man who has a rheumato- previous rheumatologic diagnosis that is a little bit unusual in its presentation and its resolution and now presents with a five-week history of a systemic disease manifest by systemic symptoms and swelling in a scrotum, that gives you one lens you know, and I think the hesitancy on all our parts is that when I think about swelling in the scrotum, just as other people have mentioned, I don't have a big differential because it's really not something that I see very much. I see it as part of a, a different syndromes, but this sounds to me like this is the primary physical abnormality. And as others have said, I'd look it up or I'd do this or that. I'm not sure. I mean, I assume that 
he's monogamous and that we're not dealing with his other level of fitness, but I don't know. So <laughs> I, that's Ooh, spicy. I, I, yeah. yeah. That was spicier than if you just said what you were actually meaning to say. <laughs> what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that I think we have a lot of different lenses, but it's going to be uh, supported by some of the things that we learn about. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Eric, presumably this is just scrotal swelling and like not going further down the legs if you're wondering about volume overload or anything like that. Correct. Isolated to the scrotum, no pedal edema. Okay. And we actually didn't hear much about a physical exam. Do we know anything about that? Oh, I should have opened with this caveat. I was never directly involved in patient care for this case. So this is all gathered from collateral. So I do not have physical exam from that emerge visit, but there is more physical coming. And well, it answer- takes, takes a lot of balls to present a case without a physical exam. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> that certainly is part of the presentation. Um, I will answer Danny's earlier comment about how the rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis came to be. And I can only tell you half the picture that his rheumatoid factor was greater than 900. His anti-CCP was also elevated at 28.2 and his CRP was 16 at the time of diagnosis. This was seven years before the index presentation. Oh, mama. As you know, I, I do not have access to his outpatient rheumatology notes. So I don't know uh, what what his clinical picture exactly was at that time. That's a that's a, a spicy rheumatoid factor. I think it like over nine hundred means it was unmeasurably high. Like that that definitely is a bit of a flag for me. It's not that it means it can't be rheumatoid arthritis, but that is absurdly high. And then the things that I kind of think of are well what could be causing, you know, a monoclonal or polyclonal uh, elevation in something with rheumatoid factor activity, the things I wonder about are hematologic malignancies, cryoglobulinemia, and then anything that can cause cryoglobulinemia, um, because that can give you a really sky-high rheumatoid factor. And uh, I think we've we've chatted about this on the show before, but kind of the, you know, the uh, cheap version of uh, testing for cryos is rheumatoid factor and complements. So C3 and C4 being low is kind of a signal that you are you have a very hyperactive complement cascade um, due to the immune complexes um, that are being formed, part of which is the rheumatoid factor that you're seeing from the cryo. So those things are on my mind. It does not exclude that he has rheumatoid arthritis. And a positive NCCCP, like, sure, that is consistent with rheumatoid arthritis. But I I think we always have to keep reevaluating those original diagnoses as we're kind of moving through the new diagnoses, I think. Danny, with that with that suggestion of cryoglobulinemia and that elevation, that presentation, would you expect skin lesions as well uh, with the duration of five weeks and this and this testicular swelling with that diagnosis? You know, I, I'm not really seeing a good story here for cryo. Um, mm. Like he, he has a, an AKI, but his urinalysis is normal. Um, he has testicular involvement, which is not really a, a feature. Um, polydipsy is not really a feature so there's like there's nothing that's pretty that's standard for cryo but what i'd be more worried about is that the cryo is floating around in the blood as a total bystander like this person happens to have a cryo but the real underlying cause of the cryo is what's now kind of rearing its head and that's that's the thing that we need to hunt for so like cryo is just kind of the sentinel or herald 
of an underlying hematologic problem. But then when we look at his blood work, like, I mean, nothing too sinister looking there. So I'm not really um, sure that anything that I just said is important. (laughs) As per usual, (laughs) we can can chop out like two thirds of whatever I just said and, uh, and move on. Okay, so maybe we turn back to Eric. We've kind of given our kind of opening thoughts and what kind of happened next in his case or, or yeah, any other so like standard investigations come back. He is sent home from Emerge because otherwise he's systemically well, well, he, he's functionally well enough to go home and he has good outpatient uh, GP follow-up. His GP season uh, sees the report of the squirrel ultrasound and common things being common thinks this is likely infectious. So he has prescribed a course of ciprofloxacin to cover no. potential infectious etiologies <laughs> that may uh, have caused his scrotal swelling. Unfortunately, he continued to worsen symptomatically. So about three days later, he presents to the emergency department of a different hospital and Smart. was in- <laughs> admitted by internal medicine to work up his constitutional symptoms, which were his chief complaint specifically weakness, loss of appetite, weight loss, chills, and night sweats. On the admission uh, HPI, he says that he feels so weak that he might drop a cup of water due to weakness. He's got constant chills and shivers, but no objective fevers unlike previously. He has absolutely no appetite, and he estimates that since this all started five weeks ago, he's lost about 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. On review of system, he denies any cough, he has no fever, no shortness of breath or chest pain, no nausea or vomiting, no hematemesis. He has some maybe numbness to the soles of his feet that began two weeks ago, but it hasn't affected his ability to walk. On physical exam, his vitals are normal. He's alert and oriented. Head and neck exam shows mild conjunctival injection, but no abnormal head or neck lymphadenopathy. Cardiovascular exam was normal, and his JVP was only three centimeters above the sternal angle. Respiratory and abdominal exams were normal. The genital urinary exam showed swollen testes, but um, no redness or tenderness to palpation. MSK exam showed he had four out of five strength throughout, but normal sensation with no focal neurologic deficits. He gets a repeat set of blood work. Uh, The CBC is essentially unchanged compared to the last set I described, his anemia is a little bit worse now, hemoglobin 117 and MCV 95. His creatinine has come down slightly to 100. His electrolytes, the common electrolytes remain normal, but his calcium was elevated at 2.69. Magnesium, 0.9. Phosphate, 0.85. Those two are normal. His bilirubin is normal. Troponin I, high sensitivity, was 6 or negative. Albumin uh, was very low at 17. Mm. Normal is between 34 to 50 grams per liter. His liver enzymes um, are slightly elevated. ALT 68, AST 47. Alkaline phosphatase 182. Upper limit of normal there is 135. His GGT was 272. Upper limit of normal is 80. And his LDH was 132, which is normal. A CK was done slightly later this admission, which was low at 12. Urine cultures were sent again. These were negative. Blood cultures were drawn and ultimately returned negative. 
an ECG showed normal sinus rhythm, and a chest x-ray showed trace bilateral pleural effusions with mild bibasilar atelectasis, no consolidation, no edema, no pneumothorax, with a normal cardiomedial sinal silhouette. His CRP uh, is repeated, different lab, but it did go down to 144. His iron panel shows a serum iron of 4, total iron binding capacity 27, and an iron saturation of 0.15. These are all slightly low, about 75% the lower limit of normal. His ferritin was 2,744. His vitamin B12 was high at 1,187. Hepatitis A serologies showed that he was immune from, actually I'm not sure from whether this is vaccination or prior exposure, because uh, it was an IgG and IgM total test. And he's non-reactive to hepatitis B surface antigen. His surface antibody titer was less than 3.1, and he's non-reactive to, to core antibody. So I'll pause again and ask the group, if you are the general internist admitting this patient, uh, how would you proceed in terms of working him up? I'd hide under a bunch of coats for a little while until someone else comes on service. <laughs> Stop it. This is amazing. Like, I mean, there's, so, again, so many pieces here, and our job is to separate noise from signal and and maybe also, you know, rely on some pattern recognition. Maybe there will just have to be a pattern that's recognized here. So kind of depends on which of the pieces that you grab at. But all of a sudden now the most salient things to me are a little bit of hypercalcemia, significant weight loss, maybe a new polyneuropathy, significant hypoalbuminemia, ferritin of 2000. When I put those things together, uh, my brain starts just yelling like this is hematologic in origin. Like, I wonder if this is like, it feels like maybe this is a plasma cell problem. He's got amyloidosis or something like that. Um, that, that explains the kidney. It explains some of the other stuff. I, for me, scrotal edema and amyloidosis, I don't have those two things linked, but maybe, you know, I know, I'm sure I don't know lots of things about amyloidosis. I just, all of a sudden I'm feeling like this is more of a hematologic thing than either, either a rheumatologic thing or, or an infectious thing. Yeah. And how about, how about you, Kat? What do you think? Yeah, I jotted down a few things as we were, or as Eric was talking. Um, definitely this weakness sounds really profound. And I wondered about some sort of like myopathy or myositis. And I'm trying to remember, you know, I learned for the Royal College everything associated with RA. <laughs> I feel like I've forgotten now if there's some kind of myositis or myopathy that could be. I definitely thought about amyloid too, as Steph had mentioned, and wondering about like that being an infiltrative process. Could we have infiltration of the testicles with that um, those amyloid proteins? And then I really wondered about the sarcoid with everything that Steph just mentioned, like the hypercalcemia, the polyneuropathy, this kind of multi-organ involvement. And Erica said, like, how would you proceed if you were the general internist? I think chasing down some of the abnormalities that we do have. So I wonder about these effusions in the chest. And I think I'd like to get a chest CT, especially with that sarcoid question that they have in mind. I'm less worried about like some really bad hematologic process with the LDH being pretty normal. Um, so to me, that was maybe this is a less 
scary, all kinds of cells dying thing at this point. Obviously, that ferritin is very high, so something really inflammatory is going on, and that raises that HLH question for you. And then I'm interested that Eric gave us Hep A and Hep B, but not Hep C, because when we talked about cryoglobulins earlier and the RF being so high, I wondered about Hep C, but then that wouldn't explain the rest of what's going on. But I feel like generally when internal medicine terms off sends off Hep serologies, we often do the Hep C too, unless we just clicked the acute hep button so that's really not giving you a clear (laughs) approach i think i'd be admitting this person and then working through the problem list that staff has kind of been laying out for us and trying to work down each of those until i can get some more clear answers Mm -hmm. and barry what's on your mind yeah um, i mean again both people have uh, presented different aspects i guess the, the shorter version is an abnormal ferritin and a slightly high calcium in a man that's got systemic symptoms and severe weakness. I guess I'm going to be first out of the gate to say uh, I think it's unlikely that this is primary HLH if he's got HLH. The, the differential diagnosis for an elevated ferritin is pretty small and it's the easier differential. So he can't be seronegative JRA uh, because he's seropositive from before. So, but I suppose it's can have an unusual rheumatologic problem. Um, HLH is on the differential. I think malignancy is on the differential. Hemochromatosis is not, given his other findings. So, I think this. I think that if I were to say what was happening, I I do a PTH. I'm assuming that the PTH is going to be low. But so, yes, I think the other things are to be considered, but. I would be uh, pretty aggressive in trying to make this diagnosis. The abnormal liver enzymes are part to me of the systemic symptoms, and I'd look for something to biopsy. We've known the testes are uh, abnormal. Um, not certain. I've never really done a testicular biopsy, although everybody talks about it. I've never been part of that. I'd look again at his lab work and see, I guess, part of the consideration if we pan scan him and there's nothing is to consider doing a bone marrow. I think that's so interesting. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's an interesting point, just because his blood counts aren't aren't terrible at all, right? Like they're they're a little askew, but like nothing that's you know blowing anyone's minds because he is in such an inflammatory state. But I suppose importantly, that does not mean that he does not have some kind of hematologic um, issue or hematologic malignancy. Yeah, I you know what I I think maybe I'm getting a little bit almost immune to like the high ferritin being like a a trigger in that way. Like why is a ferritin of 2000 more, you know, unusual than a CRP of 200? Like both of those, I guess in my eyes just seem like, yeah, I mean, he has something inflammatory and it offers no um, specificity at all until the ferritin starts to creep above like 5,000. Then you're starting to go, Oh, okay. Well that, that's really, that's unusual kind of across the board that's and that starts to get into that incredibly narrow diagnosis so that's not really tweaking anything in my brain the low albumin with not terribly abnormal liver enzymes and he's he doesn't seem to be peeing out any urine or sorry peeing out any protein how's it do you think it's it's nutritional or like why why do you folks think that he has such a low albumin and can that on its own explain the scrotal swelling and uh and some of his other features. What do you think? 
I think it's just a negative acute phase reactant. Yeah, I agree. That's a very good point. I also wondered about just like how long he's been having this decreased appetite, not eating well. I mean, he's sick. He's sick. Yeah. Can I make a a quick point here? Sure. So there's going to be like a a number of people listening to this who are either themselves like about to graduate or will soon be young, independently practicing people, or maybe there's some young staff people who listen to this. And I think what probably... Uh, I, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes very early on in my career and I, I probably continue to make a lot of mistakes, but one thing I did well is when I had a case like this, like a lot of what we admit to the hospital is stuff that I have a pretty good grasp on, you know, heart failure, pneumonia, sepsis, I got it. But some of these cases are really, really complicated. And I think your job is not to freak out and panic and freeze up. And your job is also not to run to you know, your senior uh, colleagues as quickly as possible. Your job is to put all the facts together, take a stab at it, and then not wait two weeks before asking someone like Barry for help. You know, like a case like this is probably going to be solved by someone who recognizes a pattern. It may not. There may be some diagnostic test that just kind of solves it, but more than likely, it's going to be someone who just knows this pattern of illness. And so I think your job as the attending should be to put together everything that you've got, try your best to make sense of it, and then take it, you know, when I was at Vancouver General Hospital, I would take a case like this to Mark Roberts. And when I moved over to St. Paul's, I would take a case like this to Barry and Jake. And everyone has someone like that in their hospital. You need to know who that person is going to be. You know, if this was an ID type of thing, I would take this to Peter Phillips. And so you know, we have to have someone that you trust, uh, or many someones that you trust who are older than you, probably at your hospital, and not wait forever to go ask for that help. As a new staff myself, that's helpful advice. So thank you. Okay, so I, you know, I don't, I don't think I have much else to add there. So Eric, um, what kind of happens next for for this gentleman? Well, I'll, I'll go off of what you guys have mentioned. Somebody mentioned uh, a CT scan and, and potentially pan CTing him with a question of, are, is there a occult malignancy? So he undergoes a CT chest with contrast, which did not find any abnormal mediastinal, supraclavicular, hilar, or axillary lymph nodes. They did note small pericardio and trace pleural effusions. There were no aggressive bony lesions, no evidence of a lung malignancy or metastatic disease. Also found was bilateral bronchial wall thickening and scattered subsegmental mucus plugging consistent with bronchitis. His CT abdomen and pelvis with contrast showed normal liver in terms of attenuation and morphology, no suspicious focal lesions, no intra or extra hepatic biliary duct dilation. The spleen, gallbladder, pancreas, and adrenals were all normal kidneys and ureters were normal. He did have marked enlargement of the prostate and mild soft tissue thickening of the uh, sorry, spermatic cords bilaterally, uncertain significance, uh, according to the radiologist. There was no free fluid in the peritoneal cavity, but trace bilateral pleural effusions and small pericardial effusion uh, seen again, no osseous abnormalities, no significant lymphadenopathy. And while we're on the topic of imaging, I'll bring up his CT head and neck. This is actually recorded later in this admission, and it showed a normal CT head, no hemorrhage, no infarcts, no enhancing mass, no extra axial collections, ventricles were normal in size and shape, sinuses normal. But in the CT neck, 
that showed a 1.4 centimeter slightly hyperdense well circumscribed lesion in the superficial lobe of the left parotid gland. Again, the cervical lymph nodes were normal by size and morphology criteria. The major cervical vessels were patent. The radiologist recommended an ultrasound and fine needle aspiration biopsy of the parotid gland lesion. And folks were also mentioning uh, investigating his hypercalcemia. So he does have um, a PTH scent. It was normal at 7.2. Mm. His 24-hour urine calcium was also normal, 2.8 uh, millimoles per day. And on the topic of amyloid, he gets uh, serum protein electrophoresis, which showed polyclonal hypergammaglobulinemia with two trace bands, likely a reactive pattern. Later, immunofixation showed a trace monoclonal IgG lambda band in the mid-gamma re region and a trace monoclonal IgG kappa band in the slow gamma region. His UPEP was normal, uh, tubular protein excretion pattern, no obvious monoclonal bands. His um, kappa-free light chains were high, 105, Lambda-free light chains were also high, 85, but the ratio was normal, 1.24. Uh, his ionized calcium later comes back also high, 1.49, and his 25-hydroxy vitamin D was normal at 81. Usually, we have uh, little to go on by all of our investigations except for inference, uh, but here we have two areas that we could potentially sample mm -hmm. to try and aid our diagnosis. Um, the finding of a normal PTH and high ionized calcium to me speaks of hyperparathyroidism, even though the PTH is normal. And I think I disregard his calcium at this point and concentrate more on his inflammatory infectious neoplastic lesion, lesions possibly in his prostate and or his uh, parotid. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Those seem like kind of the low-hanging fruit that we got from our investigations. So I think I would kind of turn to those next. Um, as we were going through this, I mean, I I, uh, I would have to kind of update myself on things. But, it, you know, with the su suggestion, at least, I don't think we actually got a neurologic exam consist. I, 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 can you remind me, did we get a polyneuropathy on exam? Or he was just generally weak, kind of in keeping with, like, his, his fatigue and, and weight loss and feeling unwell? He was generally weak, and uh, to your point earlier about not waiting too long uh, to ask for help, Steph, uh, neurology was consulted during this admission and um, did a professional neur neurologic exam. So, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh! As, as opposed to my <laughs> starting with their unprofessional neurologic exam. <laughs> oh my god! Starting with the history uh, of his weakness, he had described it as slowly progressive with no fluctuations day-to-day -day or hour-to-hour, -hour, definitely no diurnal variation. He says all his activities of daily living are harder to perform and take longer, but they're not functionally limiting. He has no difficulty climbing stairs. He's still able to reach his arms above his head. He has no issues with fine motor tasks. The question posed to neurology was also whether this could be a myasthenia. And around this, they, they found that he had no ptosis, no diplopia, and no fatigability on history. He did note a little bit of difficulty with chewing and is tending to prefer softer foods. But the difficulty with chewing is present immediately on starting a meal and doesn't get worse over the course of the meal. No issues with swallowing, 
no muscle pain on palpation or with movement. And again, noted that bit of numbness to the soles of both feet, which um, at this point was slowly improving. The physical exam itself uh, noted that his temporal arteries were easily palpable bilaterally. He had full strength of eye and mouth closure, normal tone, power was 5 out of 5, no fatigable weakness, sensation normal to fine touch, no ataxia, no dystidocokinesia. Okay. Um, I, I guess like one thing that at least came to mind as you, you pointed out monoclonal proteins and he has the high, the, the abnormally normal PTH, so an endocrinopathy, and I guess we're not really getting the story for a remark, like a clear polyneuropathy, like something that we're going to get EMG confirmation of a polyneuropathy on, unless I misheard you. Uh, sorry, you said his reflexes were normal? Reflexes were normal. Um, yeah, the, overall, the neuro, uh, neurology is a impression was that there's no features of fatigability so this is not myasthenia they had suspected a potential inflammatory myopathy but his ck was normal he had no muscle pain no weakness on exam so that seemed unlikely and they thought his systemic illness whether this be infectious neoplastic or a vasculitis could be contributing okay so it doesn't really kind of slot into like the poems uh, group, doesn't have any skin involvement and, and, and there's no organomegaly that we've identified. I seem to, Kat, was it, did you present a poems case to us like ages ago? Was that, was that you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think that, I think that blew our minds. All right. Well, so, so we're getting a lot of support for biopsying the things that we've found through our investigations. Um, Steph, anything uh, that's on your mind at this point? I, I think we skipped you. If I'm the patient, I'd much rather you biopsy my my salivary yeah. gland than my scrotum. <laughs> uh, I wondered again about this mumps question, right? We know like parotid and right. the testicles involved. This would be the um, worst case of mumps I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like, right. Or maybe some kind of immunosuppression that's then predisposed you to getting that. Good thought. Maybe his neurologic stuff. Could that be something perineoplastic? And then I feel like, Eric, you're like the polygonal hypergammaglobulemia expert or something, aren't you? So what do you make about his SFAP? Wow. <laughs> well, you can't Turning ask the Eric. tables on me. She's like, you, yeah. you like uh, blood or whatever. I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. I cannot comment. This is, I'm supposed to be giving you the info only. All right, all right. I think the other the other thought that sort of crossed my mind is, you know, I think the uh, hypercalcemia and and unsuppressed PTH, you know, those speak to probably primary hyperparathyroidism. And those are probably a red herring, right? I can't see how those are are related here. I think the only way that they might be is if the guy had, for example, like multiple endocrine neoplasia and he, he like associated with all of this also had like a thyroid cancer or something like you'd have to think of something that's pretty inflammatory to be making him so sick and i don't i don't think that's what's going on here but if i found that in this case i would probably also then go have a look at his neck and make sure we're not missing some something there as well because i think you know jake onrod often talks about this we're looking for the key log here the thing the strand of this that we can pull on that will cause the whole thing to unravel uh the the log to loosen that allows the log jam to flow and and so i would i would pursue that here even though that's unlikely to yield any fruit and and so you're you're pointing to the the salivary gland biopsy as the thread you'd pull or you'd 
Um, yeah, I would also go after, just make sure that we're not, this is not like, like an MEN syndrome, like, you know, look at his uh, thyroglobulin and an ultrasound of the thyroid gland and all that, just to make sure. Okay. I, I think I'd, I'd go direct. I mean, his symptom complex is still unknown and his presentation has, the one consistent feature has been his scrotal swelling. And we have an abnormality in that area. <clears throat> and before I did anything else, I biopsy that area. Yikes. I know. Straight to the scrotum. Yeah. But, but, but the prostate, I mean, it's, we're, we're told the prostate is the problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's enlarged and I can't remember the description, that, but that's where his, that's where his symptom complex is. And, and we wonder, and we haven't identified any other reason for an, for this diffuse inflammatory process, even if we found MEN. Hmm. Okay. So Eric, where Can did... I ask, Barry, are, are you expecting to find a malignancy or some other type of process causing his inflammation? Well, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not any closer to the, to the etiology just the site. I really, so whatever you announce as the result of this, if you said TB, I would say, oh yeah. If you said lymphoma, I'd say, oh yeah. If this was some sort of grumbling infection, I'd say, oh yeah. I, I don't really have a, a priority and all this other passage with the rheumatoid arthritis, I don't know how to tie that in. Even if we saw vessels that, I shouldn't say even, I suppose that would be helpful, but I don't know. I'm going to channel Jake on our, even one more time. He he is like famous for saying it is not important to be right. It is just important to do the right thing. <laughs> that's what I think that's what Barry's saying here. Like, yeah. I don't know what we're going to find, but the money is in the guy's balls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's, where the, that's where the key log is as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. so that's, I'm hearing that that's mimicking Jake. That's this is the key log to the case. <laughs> I'm hearing we need tissue biopsy. <laughs> yeah. um, unfortunately, he does not have a biopsy this admission, but he does uh, get an ID consult with this question. Could he have picked something up in his extensive travels to account for his inflammation? Is this mumps? And ID elicits a very detailed travel history. He's been to Malawi. He was there in uh, about 11 years before index presentation. Uh, spent his time in eco resorts on a safari. He was in Rwanda about eight years before presentation. He was in the city uh, doing microfinance work. He spent four months in Southeast Asia, nine years before presentation, two months in Indonesia, two months in the Philippines, again, mostly in cities doing microfinance. He's been to Peru. He was hiking Machu Picchu. He spent time in the Amazon River in resorts. And he's traveled extensively in Western Europe, USA, and Canada. He's never been sick during or after his trips. He has no pets and no recent animal exposures, no unusual exposures to water, caves, animals, food, unpasteurized dairy. He's never been informed that he was exposed to TB, and he has no risk factors, such as working in prisons, being incarcerated, etc. He can't ever recall being screened for latent TB, however. ID's impression was that this is potentially a viral illness that led to epididymal orchitis now slowly improving. They did check his mumps serology, which was IgG reactive, but IgM negative, suggesting prior infection. They checked his EBV heterophile antibody, and that was negative. HIV was negative, and his treponema EIA was also negative. The patient 
spends 11 days in hospital at this admission. And over this time, he's had improvement in his inflammatory markers. His energy and strength have slightly improved, but he's still having poor appetite. He was started on tamsulosin for his enlarged prostate and also Fixed everything. nocturia. And he's referred for an outpatient parotid biopsy. Sorry, Barry, and the scrotum's going to have to wait, I guess. We'll, we'll see about biopsying so. that after. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's reasonable that, you know, he's not, he's getting somewhat, I guess, he's not worsening. So um, I think we're still going to be seeing the prostate biopsy. And I, I'm predicting that parotid isn't going to be that helpful, but that's, I guess we'll to, see. To give you another data point, his discharge lab work, his hemoglobin's down to 97, again, normal CIDIC, uh, to remind you, it was 117 on admission. His creatinine has normalized to 70. His calcium has normalized to 2.06, and he did get treatment in the form of IV fluids and permidronate during this admission. His liver enzymes have all improved. His CRP has come down to about 90. But as an outpatient, his symptoms continue to progress. He has profound fatigue, worsening since discharge, very little appetite. He can't do anything at home, and he continues to lose weight. So he's seen in the uh, outpatient GIM clinic by the physician who was most responsible for him during his admission. And this physician calls hematology for consideration of a bone marrow biopsy. And the hematologist, on the other hand, hears the story and recommends another biopsy, which is neither bone marrow nor parotid nor prostate that ultimately leads to the diagnosis. And I wonder if you guys would hazard a guess as to what that was. Not the pericardium? Not the pericardium. Just just as a, a meta comment, that is like the longest setup to like the best question ever. Like what what an awesome story to get to this. The one thing that's going to tell you the case is nothing any of you have said. So I love this. I don't Not know. We're waiting, Danny. You love it, but... I love I, I love I love how cosmic the mystery is. I think it's it's going to have to be something pretty tidy like either this person has said this all sounds like amyloid and you need to do like an abdominal ah, fat, fat pad fat. biopsy or this person is going to say I think this patient has IgG4 disease and you need to biopsy a whatever, you know, some lymph node or something that we've missed. Uh, I, it's going to have to be something that you would discuss over the phone with someone. And then they would just clue in. Like, we've been drowning in yeah. information for 50 minutes now, and <laughs> most of it's going to be extraneous. Sorry. <laughs> I, no, yeah, no, no, I, no. Not, that's, do not apologize. This is how these cases unfold. But, you know, again, this is about the value of talking about this case with as many people as you can. Someone is going to hear, you know, this case is discussed over the phone. They're going to hear 30 facts. They're going to take the six relevant ones out, mash them together in their mind, and they're going to say, oh, this is IgG4 disease or amyloidosis or whatever. And and that's how that's how I do these cases is I'm lost and I just talk to my smart friends and then someone ends up figuring it out. Well, but I think the other side of this, I mean, how many things can we biopsy? I mean, you could biopsy the skin. We haven't heard there's any abnormalities of the skin. There's a specific biopsy that could show you that this is poems by biopsying the skin. But again, as I say, we haven't seen or ha- haven't heard any abnormality of the skin. We've had abnormal liver enzymes, so it's possible we could do a liver biopsy. But with his enzymes improving, I think that would be, uh, I don't think I would do it. I, I just, uh, I, I'm going to listen to everybody else because I'm really curious to, I'm not sure what 
what I would biopsy to make a diagnosis, other than what I've said. I think that's right. I, I think fat pad biopsy is, could wrap things up somewhat. So I'm going to go for fat pad biopsy. Throw in a step. Yeah, because I was, I was trying to think about like what abnormal things could be biopsy. But I think you bring up a good point, Steph, that maybe it was just like they put all the history together and said this is definitely amyloid and we should do the fat pad biopsy or something like that. Can I just say in all the years that I've practiced and approached this, I've never once had a positive fat pad biopsy for anyone. So <laughs> I'll be very, this may be my first case and I'm very happy to learn, but I'm just sharing that. I'm trying to look, Eric's got a good poker face over here. <laughs> you guys ready for the answer? He's, just oh, a, yeah. he's a tired young father. That's just what his face looks like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the hematologist, Dr. Luke Chen, recognized a, a clinical picture that he had seen a few times before and thought this was atypical GCA and recommended a temporal artery biopsy. This is the hematologist making this diagnosis. Stop it. All roads lead to room. <laughs> and indeed, the patient undergoes a left temporal artery biopsy by vascular surgery, and this comes back positive Stop for it. giant cell arteritis. The section showed patchy involvement of the sampled artery by mild transmural infiltrate of mononuclear cells. Now, you guys didn't mention whether you would consult room during the index admission, uh, but in fact, rheumatology was consulted with the question of, is this PMR? Uh, they did their full review of systems, physical exam, etc., and agreed with you. The, they thought the inflammatory picture and constitutional symptoms were nonspecific. There was nothing on history or examination in keeping with a specific autoimmune inflammatory arthritis. No features of PMR on exam or history. His RA was quiescent. They thought orchitis may, may be seen in some vasculitides, such as a PAN, but he had no other systemic features, such as renal involvement or skin involvement. So they thought they agreed with ID. This is potentially an improving viral process. The patient was started on prednisone, 40 milligrams PO daily, and had significant improvement in his energy and appetite back to baseline. Unfortunately, he's also suffering side effects of high-dose steroids, anxiety, insomnia, feeling jittery. His CRP, about after about nine days of steroids, uh, had come down to 22.3. Wow. So what are the odds? But also, does that explain, like, how do you get this orchitis that associated with GCA? There have, like it's <clears throat> there have been case reports. I did a quick Google of um, GCA presenting with squirtle swelling. And up to date, the up to date article on GCA will tell you that approximately 10% of patients with GCA constitutional symptoms and or laboratory evidence of inflammation dominate the clinical presentation and may be the only clues to diagnosis. So Luke Chen, when I was a med student, did a clinic with me and had a case very similar to this one that stuck with me since. And in med school, I was always taught the classic picture of headache jaw claudication, maybe visual changes. But, you know, the best I can tell from, from reading the literature, headache is only present in two-thirds of patients with GCA and jaw claudication about a half. So 10% is not negligible. And the U.S. lifetime risk of GCA is estimated at 1% in women, 0.5% in men. So this is a relatively common, common condition. And 10% of that is a sizable number of people. Um, so Dr. Chen has told me that he's he's seen like a dozen of these over the years, maybe one per year of presenting 
without the classic picture of GCA, but he sends them for a temporal artery biopsy and it comes back positive. Okay, I think I, it's really, I, I think it's great. I, Sorry, I Danny. Thoughts, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was good that I was kind of already about to retire anyways, because now I, <laughs> I have to. I, I, I definitely do not feel bad that I am a worse rheumatologist than Luke Chen is, because he's, he's fantastic. So I don't feel embarrassed that I didn't get this and he did. I feel embarrassed that I didn't get it at all. But when I think about the case, I'm, you know, I, I think that's an awesome call. I would consider GCA in someone, just like you said, who has inflammation NYD or fevers NYD, and that has long been on kind of the the differential and, and list of things that can cause um, fever, uh, you know, of unknown origin. And a temporal artery biopsy is very reasonable in, in cases like that where you just cannot find what they have. This had so much other stuff. Like there's a whole bunch of, st- and the scrotal swelling piece, I I actually, I'm still a bit confused by that because you can get, like if you're going to get scrotal involvement or, or testicular involvement in vasculitis, it's vasculitis usually. So it's a painful orchitis. It's an ischemia, right? Like an angina of, of the testicles, I guess. So I, I'm, I'm still a bit confused what is actually happening in the scrotum there. And I, I got to say, like, I, I'm still not totally seeing how I would hear this story and, and think GCA. I, I think that's wonderful that, like, it was solved, that that's brilliant. I still don't see it, and I know the answer. So I think that's, that's really incredible. So I'm super impressed. And I know there's, there's one vasculitis person who does sometimes listen to this show. So if you're out there and you solved this <laughs> before you got the answer, uh, send me a text because... Uh, I owe you a beer. I, I was curious to hear what Barry said and whether he is on board with this. Because one time I presented a case and said, boom, this is the answer. And he said, no way, that doesn't explain everything. So I wondered, are you on board this time? <laughs> no, I think it. So it, so actually, in the last couple of months, the New England Journals had in their regular series a, a, a GCA that was very atypical and went through its discussion similar to the one that Eric just presented. And I, and Danny makes a good point, looking for GCA in a nonspecific inflammatory disease where you can't find anything else, that there's really, I think, good for Luke, but there's nothing here. There's nothing here that would have said other than the inflammatory. Uh, it's just funny that we do have areas to biopsy, and maybe it wouldn't have given us the answer. And maybe the temporal artery was an easier biopsy just to do and get rid of before we get into this other thing. But I have to admit that I'm I'm also in awe of Luke Chen. And I don't know that I would have, uh, I think I would have changed the order of biopsy, but I'm good for Luke. I don't know. It's interesting too, because I feel like so often you can get a negative temporal artery biopsy too, right? It's almost lucky you actually got the right yeah. area <laughs> to make the diagnosis. Yeah, I'm hearing I'm, some. Yeah, absolutely. That, I don't know if skepticism nice. is the right <laughs> word, but I think the case is not closed. The patient does have obviously outpatient rheumatology follow up, and there there is uneasiness about whether this is a true positive and whether we can simply close the book on on his uh, story. Yeah, I, I really wonder. Like, so if we go by, you know, Jake Onra, right? What was your pretest probability that this was GCA? Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm glad he solved it, but like, I don't know, zero, like, <laughs> like under five percent that it's a random. 
yeah, but, that's not, but if, if you're thinking about this from, like, say, a Bayes' theorem standpoint, there are some results that are specific enough that they still they still move your post-test probability, you know, one direction enough to, to sort of at least make the diagnosis much more likely. Like, oh, totally. What are the chances that this is a a red herring positive temporal artery biopsy? I don't believe that. I, I think this is probably GCA. And what it tells me is that I don't know enough about GCA, but this isn't, I would, I would say like, as long as there's, you know, someone recognizes clinical syndrome. So the pretest probability for Luke Chen was high, and then he got a positive temporal artery biopsy. Unless something goes really haywire with the treatment where the patient really just doesn't respond, I would say, yeah, it's probably GCA. I'm glad you brought up um, Dr. Onrod's Bayesian theory here. So that's that's the main reason I wanted to present this case is um, to add this to your, I guess, clinical encyclopedia of presentations for GCA, because if we take that estimated lifetime risk of GCA being 1% for women, 0.5% in men, that's a huge population of people who might develop GCA walking around. And if 10% of those present atypically, then that really affects your pretest probability in folks presenting with inflammation NYD. So the classic, um, I guess, uh, riddle or fallacy uh, to teach Bayes was they give you this picture of a man who's bookish, tidy, fastidious, and ask you, is he more likely to be a farmer or a librarian? And most people hearing that description would say librarian, but that doesn't take into effect the pre-test probability, uh, pre-test knowledge that there are a lot more farmers in the world than there are librarians. This is, you know, a story from, I guess, mid-century U.S. when there were hundreds of thousands of farmers. And I think the same situation applies here. Because there's so many people walking around with potential GCA and 10% of them present atypically, then this is something worth considering and worth knowing about. Yeah, it was well done. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, wow, a great case. And listeners, you you wanted a case and you sure, you sure as hell got one. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. All right. So I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up there, but we'll be coming out with uh, more episodes as the year goes on. And uh, we'll talk to everyone soon. Thanks for listening.